host, Joel, and today we're focusing on Joshua 6 through 11. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. All the links are in the show notes. If questions come up during the course of your reading, please ask them at bit.ly ask dash ot. Once again, that's bit dot ly slash capital A lowercase sk dash capital O capital T. Now last week, I mentioned that there isn't much historical and archaeological evidence supporting the story of Joshua. Let me qualify that in a couple ways. First, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Simply because we've not yet found historical evidence of the story of Joshua, in other words, doesn't mean that the story of Joshua did not happen historically. Second, it also doesn't mean that Joshua isn't an important book of scripture. It just means that instead of finding its meaning in the historicity of the text, we can find the meaning of the book of Joshua in the themes of its narrative. One primary lesson we see in Joshua, for example, the lesson we'll sit with today, is the necessity of opposing anything which opposes God. Joshua makes clear that there's no fence-sitting. We either align ourselves with God or against God. And at the end of all things, all that opposes God's reign of righteousness and justice will be cast aside. We see this in the message of Jesus. In one place, Jesus says, all who are not with me are against me. And in another place, Jesus says, all who are not against me are with me. This means that there's really a binary here. We are either aligned with God or against God. Now, before we get into the text, I want to say a couple more things about Joshua, particularly regarding the battles we see in the first half of the book uh, from Joshua 6 through 11, our our reading for this week. Modern archaeology and scholarship suggest that several of these battles did not happen when and how they are described in Joshua. Taking Jericho, for example, uh, Jericho had been a walled city a few hundred years before the Israelite invasion, around uh, 1500 BC is when it was a walled city, whereas the Israelite invasion likely happened around 1200 BC. When, When the Israelites came into town, the town of Jericho was not likely walled, so there's a hiccup here somewhere. Whether that means the Israelites came earlier or later, or whether it means that this story is is modified a little bit, uh, something is fishy here. Something is a little hinky. There are other cities and towns mentioned in Joshua's military campaign that are similarly unlikely as historical conquests. The timeline just doesn't make sense with what we know from scholarship, the history of other people, people groups in the ancient Near East, as well as archaeology. Now, as I said above, evidence of absence and absence of evidence are not the same thing. Um, However, I wanted to make these comments here at the beginning of the podcast because I don't want us to get distracted by questions of the quote-unquote truthiness of Joshua, the historical truthiness as we discern it. It's important that Christians pursue truth in all things, spiritual, historical, scientific things, all of these things, and so forth. So these questions of historical accuracy matter. All truth is God's truth. But when we read the Hebrew Bible, we need to read it on its own terms. 
and historical accuracy was not likely the primary concern of the writers of the Hebrew Bible. Their primary concern was much more likely communicating the relationship between God and humanity through a retelling of Israel's history. For the writers of the Hebrew Bible, historical truth takes a backseat to theological truth. And if there are some, we'll be able to find some capital T true things that we can learn from the narrative, regardless of whether it preserves lowercase t true historical events. That just wasn't the way that these sorts of writings were written at this time in this place in the ancient Near East. There wasn't the question of historical scientific truth in the same way that we have it today. Now, while this pursuit of truth may upset our assumptions about how Scripture operates, truth never threatens God or God's existence because our God is a God of truth. So with all this in mind, thank you for, for letting me caveat a little bit, let's turn to the text. The first chapters describe battles against Jericho and Ai, both towns the Israelites besieged. Now, many of us have learned the story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, and, and some of us who were uh, born cradle Christians, we learned it early in our lives in Sunday school. It's one of the first stories we tell children along with Noah and the flood. I remember marching around and around during that story in Sunday school and wondering, would we cause the church to fall down? Reflecting back on this, I wonder Why is such a story about slaughtering an entire town so often prominently featured in our children's Bibles? In fact, so much of the history of the Hebrew Bible is extremely violent. We can think of Deborah and Samson, or King David even. They all come to mind. We'll encounter Deborah and Samson soon in the book of Judges, whereas David will have to wait until 1 and 2 Samuel to, to reckon with. But perhaps the reason we tell this story to children is the miraculous nature of God's deliverance in battle. This is true for so much of Israel's fighting. Very rarely do they defeat their enemies through having superior strategy or superior fighting strength, although we will see some clever strategies on Joshua's part later in this week's reading. Instead, the people of Israel win only because God intercedes on their behalf. And I wonder... Do children feel similarly? Do they feel like they need divine intervention to have any sort of authority in the home, the schoolyard, the classroom, so on and so forth? Maybe Joshua and the Battle of Jericho gives them hope that God will make a way even when things seem impossible. I suppose adults need reminders about that also, but children are a people group that it is still societally okay to discriminate against. And there's some things about that that uh, perhaps are important and good, but so frequently in our conversations around beginning to meet again in church, we forget the fact that children under 12 have not been approved for vaccine yet. Uh, Dealing with re-entry and re-emergence from this pandemic, we don't want to forget about children. We We don't want them to have to count on divine intervention in order to to feel important. A couple months ago, I mentioned that the Hebrew Bible equivocated about intermarriage, suggesting you know there are some passages that seem to grant that intermarriage could be a good thing, while others are not at all convinced. 
The authors of Deuteronomy and Joshua, for example, regularly speak against intermarriage, highlighting stories about the dangers of intermarriage. But when we look at Rahab's story in this battle of Jericho, we see that she, a Canaanite, a Canaanite prostitute, is welcomed into the people of Israel with her family. She actually marries an Israelite, and her descendants will become quite important in Israel's story. That's the kind of thing I mean. On the one hand, intermarriage, according to Joshua and Deuteronomy, poses a danger insofar as it might lead Israel away from God. But on the other hand, some intermarriages truly benefit the children of Israel. We'll learn more about that in the story of Ruth. So over and over again, through the story of Jericho, God makes clear that everything must be totally destroyed. Everything is, um, in, in Hebrew, it's put under the ban. That means that, that the Hebrew people were banned from taking possession of anything. Everything was totally dedicated to God. When a story emphasizes something over and over again like this, that means it's worth remembering. And the next chapter, Joshua 7, doesn't disappoint us. One of the, of the Israelites in Judah's tribe named Achan takes some booty from Jericho without telling anyone. The narrative is silent on the question of how he removed it without anyone noticing and got it back to his tent and so on. But because of this theft of those things which belong to God, Achan brought a curse upon the people of Israel because of his disobedience. And because of that, the next battle against Ai goes very poorly. Not because the Israelites are outgunned, they aren't, but because Achan violated the ban. We do this too. I know that I'm regularly tempted to take hold of things that ought to be given to God. Often, I try to handle my own sin instead of asking God to take care of it for me, wanting to come to God as a perfect person, deserving of all the gifts that God gives us, instead of coming to God as a broken sinner in desperate need of God's grace. One of the uh, medieval church fathers, John Calvin, says that communion is not a reward for the faithful, it's medicine for the sick. We do not need to be perfect people in order to come to God. In fact, the reason we come to God is because we aren't perfect people. But when we try to be perfect, when we try and hold on to our sin so that we can take care of it, instead of redeeming our own sin, we end up taking hold of sin, aligning ourselves with our sinful nature and putting ourselves under God's judgment. In the same way as Achan took hold of the possessions that should have been God's that were under the ban, in the same way that he did that, when we take hold of our sin, we put ourselves in the crosshairs of God's judgment. Achan put himself under the ban by taking that which was God's. We put ourselves under judgment when we cling to our sin. Only God can deal with our sin and death, and if we cling to sin and death, we will be dealt with in the same way as God deals with our sin. So 
Israelites get routed in their first encounter with the men of Ai. Like Moses, Joshua comes to God. This misfortune drives Joshua to beseech, uh, uh, to beseech the God of Israel. However, careful readers might notice that the way that Joshua prays to the God of Israel sounds an awful lot like those Israels who complained against Moses did. Did you bring us here to die, O Lord? See, although there were times that Moses came to God with a matter of deep concern, the tone of Moses' interactions with God weren't like this that we see Joshua have. Moses' interactions with God always assumed that God had plans, as we'll hear in Jeremiah later in our reading plan, God had plans to prosper the Israelites and not to harm them, plans to give them a hope and a future. There's a sense here that Joshua might not be as trusting of God as Moses was, that Joshua might not be quite as capable a leader as Moses was. But in any case, after dealing with Achan's sin, Israel goes into battle once again against Ai. Through a combination of God's provision and Joshua's shrewdness, Israel defeats Ai. And this is often how it works, isn't it? Humans are not puppets or robots who are programmed by God's will. Instead, Joshua utilizes his strengths. And through Joshua's strength and God's deliverance, the children of Israel overwhelm the military of Ai. We are not called to completely divorce ourselves from our strengths in service to God. No, God calls us to serve. God provides us strengths to serve. Uh, As we talked about a little bit with the story of Moses, God does not call the equipped. God equips the called. And what, how God equipped Joshua here after calling him was exactly what Joshua needed in order to fulfill the work God had for him to do. After dealing with Achan's sin, God allows the Israelites slightly more leeway. Uh, they, in, in invading Ai, the Israelites can take some of the animals along with any treasure found there. And this reminds me quite a bit about uh, how I, as a parent, will sometimes ease up on my three-year-old after realizing that she can't hold quite as hard a line as I had hoped. I, I, when, when I realize that my three-year-old is not mature enough to follow certain directions, I simplify them, asking less of her than I originally was asking, because I realize, well, she's not at the point where she can follow the directions I had for her at first. Perhaps God does the same thing here with the people of Israel, realizing, you know, i got to meet these people where they are. God is very good at coming to our level, speaking to us in a language we understand. After the battle against Ai, Mount Ebal, or excuse me, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerasim make another appearance. You may remember these were the mountains of curse and blessing in the ratification of the, of the covenant in Deuteronomy and then again at the beginning of Joshua. Now, although Mount Ebal and Mount Gerasim aren't physically opposite Ai, as the text suggests, there's a spiritual proximity here that Ai demonstrates both the curse of Mount Ebal and the blessing of Mount Gerizim, that the curse of Mount Ebel comes when, like Achan, you don't pay attention to, to God's commands, whereas the blessing of Mount Gerizim comes when, like the Israelites, you listen to God and are willing to try again. It's one thing to ratify 
the covenant with these two mountains. And it's quite another to associate them with a narrative of, of conquest here to see uh, uh, sort of in the flesh what it looks like to have the curses of Mount Ebel and the blessings of Mount Gerasim. The people living in the promised land at this point begin to see the Israelites as a problem. Uh, after their successful invasion of Ai, the chieftains of many people grew, excuse me, after the Israelites' successful invasion of Ai, there are chieftains of a ton of different people groups that band together to deal with the Hebrew people. But there's one people group, the Gibeonites. They've got a different plan. There's a lot that's said in the book of Joshua about the total destruction of the inhabitants of the promised land. And yet throughout Israel's history, the reality was that many of the Canaanites were not totally destroyed. And uh, in, in wondering, how could this be? Well, the story of the Gibeonites shares how the people of, Gibe of Gibeon dodged this program of total destruction. Although the Gibeonites act shrewdly, it's interesting. They never outright lie to the Hebrew people. Everything they say is true, at least from a certain point of view. Uh, they weren't, you know, residents from real far away, but they were far away. They were a couple days walk. I think this tells us that there will be choices that seem obvious to us in the moment. And it's regularly a good idea to chat with God and with other trusted advisors about what decision to make. As the narrative names here, Joshua and the other leaders didn't consult the Lord before entering into an alliance with the Gibeonites. And it's this alliance that makes the people of Israel more dangerous in the eyes of the other Canaanite kings who, who now come up to drive out both the Israelites and the Gibeonites. Despite being tricked into an alliance with the Gibeonites, the people of Israel honor that alliance. We get this miraculous story where Joshua, with God's power, supernaturally extends the daylight by somehow making the sun stand still. The additional sunlight allows the Hebrews to pursue and overtake their enemies in battle. This is what I would call an, a by any means necessary approach to warding off all that is not of God. It reminds us that God can do the impossible on our behalf in order to cleanse us from sin, in order to, to cleanse us from anything that opposes God's reign in our lives. However, the war against all that which is not of God isn't finished after the first battle. We will never be fully free of the battle against sin and death until God makes a new heaven and a new earth. Despite this uh, miraculous lengthening of the day and this great victory in battle, the people of Israel are not yet done driving out the Canaanites from the promised land. In fact, Joshua would never subdue Jerusalem, for example, which would remain in the hands of the Jebusites until the time of David. There were other enclaves that, that existed throughout Israel, pointing to a certain unwillingness on the part of the Israelites to totally dedicate themselves to opposing that which opposed God. My hope for all of us is that we would dedicate ourselves to opposing that which opposes God, not in a genocidal way, but in a way where we can be faithful to God's command in our lives, to, to give our entire hearts to our Lord. So Joshua deals with the southern kings, and after this, the, the northern kings muster a fighting force. And Joshua dispatches them in the same way he dispatched the southern kings, with God's blessing 
and with surprising speed. You see, because the Israelites didn't have massive armies of chariots and foot soldiers, they were more guerrilla fighters, I guess, than anything else. They could move with the agility and speed of, of those who are used to guerrilla warfare. According to the text, the Israelites did not leave any who breathed in these cities. The only exception besides the Gibeonites to this were the Anakim in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. And I want you to remember this. The Anakim were the race of giants. This is going to be important later because the giant Goliath, who was killed by the future King David, came from Gath. And yet, despite that boast of total destruction, we know from later narratives, even a narrative just a couple chapters later in the book of Joshua, that the destruction was not as total as is claimed in this chapter. So Joshua was not successful in driving away all those who opposed God from the land. In fact, throughout its existence, Israel would fight the influence of other people in the land, would fight the influence of the gods of other people, the worship of the gods of other people in their land. And I wonder how successful you've been in driving all that opposes God out of your heart. What are the idols that your heart loves, that you want to preserve a space for in the land of your heart? You see, God wants your whole heart, and God will work miracles in your life to help you offer your entire heart, your entire being to the Lord. God is willing to pull out all the stops and love us by any means necessary, just as God was willing to make the sun stand still for the people of Israel. How will we respond to such a great love? That's all for Joshua 6 through 11. Next week, we'll read Joshua 12 through 17, where we'll deal with the tricky work of distributing the land to the various tribes. May God bless you in your reading of Scripture.